Hey gang, how you doing? I hope your uh, Tuesday's off to a good start uh, this week. This second, are we in the second week of October or the third? I guess we're in the second week of October. Yeah, took me a little bit to get my bearings there. Uh, good morning to you. We are currently in the gospel according to Paul as he writes it to the Ephesians. How's that for a, a long title? Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, Barb. Who else is here? I can't see everybody. Hi, Bonnie. Um, good morning, Brian. Um, so yeah, it's a gray and muggy day out here, but uh, man, the fall is sure. It is definitely 100% my favorite time of the year. I just got to spend a couple days up in Vermont, and if you have never done so, dear, dear friend, please do yourself a favor and go see a little preview of what is coming for us in the heavenlies because Vermont in the fall is, I'm almost certain, a picture of what the new Jerusalem will look like. Uh, it is incredible. And so is the maple syrup, and so is the cheese, and so is the wine, etc., etc., etc. So uh, that's my little plug for Vermont. I'm thinking about joining their tourism board. You know, we'll see. I don't know if they'll take a New Yorker slash New Jersey and whatever. Uh, anyhow, all right, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. We are looking at verses 7 through 16, and we've sort of been looking at God's building of his church. Last week we looked at how uh, he's called us to unity and the characteristics that, that we really need to display towards one another in order to foster that unity, you know, the characteristics of humility and gentleness and, uh, and love, bearing with one another in love, Paul mentioned. And this week we're going to be digging further into that theme of God's building of his church. And the first thing that we see that might be obvious about the building of his church when we read the passage is that God's church is always built and grown through Jesus. So listen to what verses 7 through 10 say. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then parenthetically, Paul says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean, good morning, Linda, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now let's just stop there for a second. Here's the picture that Paul is creating. Jesus comes down to his creation, lives perfectly in his creation's place, healing, forgiving, loving, accomplishing the Father's will perfectly in every way. He is killed, taking the penalty for the world's sins uh, that he does not deserve on the cross. And it appears at that moment, as he is uh, brought low, that the devil and his angels have won and that the world has, in fact, finally defeated God. But God the Father raises Christ from the dead, vindicating him, showing the world that his claims about himself were indeed true. Forty days later, he ascends into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, victorious over sin, death, and hell. Here's what we're getting at. We often talk about 
Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was a picture of sort of, you know, this lowly way of entering Jerusalem. We've called it triumphal entry. In fact, his real triumphal entry actually happens at the Ascension. His truly triumphal entry being described by Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, happens when he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Just as in ancient days with ancient kings, Jesus has his enemies, the devil and his angels, chained behind him. That literally was a thing, by the way, back in the day when there was a triumphal entry. You had your enemies held captive behind you, and they were brought up in a, it was a train of people. That's what you often hear referred to in the New Testament. In this passage, we're told that he ascended uh, and led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Yes, just like a triumphal entry, that was what exact, that's what happened back in the day when generals or kings would come back from war. They would lead their captives, but they would also give gifts out in celebration. That's what's being uh, that's what's being said here. Jesus carries with him the plunder uh, or gifts, and now he is giving these gifts to the citizens of his kingdom. So, the church is owned, sustained, moved by Jesus. He owns every single member of his church. The church is not owned and run by elders by a really, really charismatic pastor, by anybody besides Jesus. Some churches in this country have built on a thousand other things besides Jesus. They build on politics. They build on the charisma of the pastor. They build on their programs for kids. They build on their finances, they build on their demographics, some on their history, some on their label, and some on their ethnicity. But whenever the church seeks to build on anything else besides the true foundation of Jesus Christ, I can assure you it will eventually cease to exist. It will crumble. Because we're promised in Scripture, remember this is a promise, He is the vine. We are the branches. The branches are not able to bear any fruit when they are severed from the vine. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He is the cornerstone of the temple. We are the living stones built on top of him. He is the head. We are the body. I mean, every picture you have in Scripture is saying, Jesus is the one in charge, so submit to him, (laughs) dum-dums. So... The church's building begins and ends with Christ. Now, with that being said, Christ does use certain instruments or vessels to accomplish his building of his church in the here and now. And these instruments are called gifts that Christ fills by his spirit to do certain tasks. And for our purposes today, I'll refer to them as leader teachers. Leader teachers. The means or the instruments through which Christ builds his church are these leader teachers. And you can find them referenced in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. There he says, And he gave, speaking of the gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. For what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Christ. 
Now, should be said up front, these are not all the gifts that Jesus gives to his church for its building and for its edification. We know from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 that there are many other gifts. Uh, but in this verse, the gifts that are emphasized are those that are given to people for the leading and teaching of the church. And so let's just go over them briefly. First of all, you have the apostle. Now, the word apostle means sent one in Greek. Uh, literally, these were the uh, eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus who had seen him alive, uh, were commissioned to go out to all the corners of the earth and preach the gospel. It was through them that the New Testament we have today was written, as Jesus promised them. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. They were the founders of the one of the church, so to speak. So that's who the apostles are. And if we were going to, you know, sort of see, sort of look for the apostolic gift today, um, I don't think that the office of apostle is still around today, and that's a discussion for another time. Uh, but I do think that there's apostolic gifts Probably the closest one that we'd find is somebody that's gifted to be a church planter uh, because that's in indeed what apostles did. They would go out, they would begin a church, and then they would move on and do it again. Um, and you see that throughout the book of Acts. Um, <clears throat> second, you had prophets. Now, oftentimes when we think of prophets, we think of somebody that, in a, for whatever reason, we, we tend to just go immediately to somebody that has the ability to tell the future. Uh, in fact, that's not the biblical sense of the word. The biblical sense of the word prophet is just somebody that God brings his word through, a mouthpiece that he proclaims his word through for his people. And so uh, it's, it can be very simple in our definition of it, but it tends to be also that the prophet or the person with a prophetic gift is somebody that, uh, that preaches the word in such a way or shares God's word in such a way that they're for lack of a better term they do it with a boldness even th though they know what they say might not be popular um, that tends to be the way that we see that and part part of the reason we see that gift that way is because of what we so often see in the Old Testament the Old Testament is filled with these prophets who are sent out to say words to people that are not going to be popular, that are not going to be well received, but they say it anyway because that's what God has gifted them to do. Uh, they're portrayed as people that eat up God's word and then uh, regurgitate it back to his people to warn them and to also edify them. Uh, thirdly, you have evangelists, so basically missionaries in any culture, anywhere, fall under this category. Uh, in every age of the church, there have been those specifically gifted to bring lost people to the Lord. Uh, this is someone who has a burden for the lost and can't stop thinking of ways to bring them into the kingdom. Um, not to say that we're all not called in some way to share the gospel. Um, I think we, we obviously are, but there's, there's clearly a gifting for this as well. So it goes above and it's, like, it's sort of like, hey, we're all called to be hospitable. But there's some who have a real gift for hospitality, um, and that's sort of the same uh, type thing here. And then finally, you have shepherd teacher uh, in, in Paul's short list of leader teacher gifts. Uh, now, if you look in your Bibles, you're, you're going to see that there's an and in between shepherd and teacher, uh, typically. I don't, know if, I don't know what your translations are. I'm using the ESV. Um, but 
typically it's uh, it's conveyed with and. The, but the reality is in Greek, it actually is really conveying the idea of one office. You could translate it shepherd teachers, one gifting. And, uh, and so that person is the, the pastor. And I think that description, shepherd teacher, really describes what they're called to do. Uh, on the one hand, they are called to lead and tend you uh, as part of God's flock in your griefs and in your pain and in your joys, to be with you. Um, I, I was interviewed on a podcast a couple years ago uh, by a younger pastor who wanted my advice about ministry, as if I, I have much to give at all. I don't. I have very little wisdom. Uh, but he said, is there anything you've learned? And I said, well, here's what I would say to younger pastors. Younger pastors want to get out there and preach and want to be great preachers. And what your people really need you to do is be the guy that shows up at the hospital and be the guy that shows up when they need someone to talk to and just be the guy who's present. Vastly more important, vastly more effective than somebody's ability to get up on a stage and look good and preach a great sermon. Um, there's a thousand of those guys out there. There's not a thousand shepherds that can look you in the eye and proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to you when you're in a crisis. That's a pastor. That's a shepherd teacher. And so uh, that, that's my take on what a shepherd teacher is called to do um, and to be with his sheep and to lead his sheep. And frankly, I mean, if you're a shepherd, you're going to get your hands dirty. You're going you're to smell like sheep, and you should or else you're not doing your job as a pastor. All right, so uh, God builds his church by Christ. He builds his church through leader teachers. Thirdly, he builds his church through you. So you can see the, the progression in this passage, right? As the text goes on, to the, goes on to say, the teacher leaders were given for the specific purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So you see the process. It starts with Christ. He appoints leaders to equip you. you. You being equipped now edify one another. You build each other up in the body. And the word equipped there literally means to be fitted or prepared. It was used when a doctor would uh, reset a broken arm. Uh, through the ministry of Christ, through his appointed leaders, you are taken from brokenness and reset uh, prepared to go out then and minister to others, building others up. That's the goal. And what is the result? What is the, the goal of this building up? Well, verse 13 tells us, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, or it could be translated personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let me just break that down. As Christ builds his church by the leader teachers that he sent out there to preach his word, and the church is then equipped to do the same thing with one another, to share this gospel word of what Jesus Christ has done, 
and to help people grow into that gospel word, well then, it creates unity, the very thing that Paul began this chapter emphasizing. Unity of the faith and the knowledge of Jesus. There's, there is, it doesn't get much more central than that. You grow in knowledge of Jesus and you grow in unity with others who are growing in knowledge of Jesus. Secondly, it leads to maturity, aka no longer children. Literally, it could be translated actually no longer infants. Firmness and assurance. Those are the words you see in the passage. And I can't tell you, uh, cannot tell you how significant this is. It's interesting, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul talks about the goal of growth in the Christian life. And you know, oftentimes the way it's talked about, the growth, I mean, it's, we get this wrong all the time. We, we just get it, we are so self-centered that we focus on all the things we're doing. But you know what he ends up saying in Colossians 2, verse 3? He ends up saying that the goal of growth is that we would be more assured in Christ that he's already done everything. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? The goal is not so that my belly button gets more clean. The goal isn't that I look better. The goal is that I'm more assured that Jesus really has done it all. That's the point of all the leading and the teaching and the edifying and the building each other up. If it doesn't lead to more assurance, then you're not discipling. You're not actually edifying each other if you're taking away and stealing what Christ has done from them. So, that's the point of it. And I'm trying to sum it up real quick, but it's really, uh, he says, I, I, I don't want you to be tossed to and fro. I don't want you to be, you know, just carried out by the waves of every kind of teaching out there. I want you to be firm and rooted in the knowledge that Jesus really has accomplished it all, and that's enough. And that he's going to continue his work through you. I want you to be bold and confident in that. And the result is that when we actually are bold and confident in the fact that Jesus has done it all, well, it turns out that, yes, he begins to make us look more and more like him. What do you know? It, we've been saying this forever. Sometimes we get knocked uh, about it or, or because of it. You know, We say all the time. Good works, truly good works, are only produced by Christians who are deeply assured that Christ has done it all. That when you know that everything has been accomplished necessary for your salvation, apart from anything you've done or will do, that it's all finished. That when Jesus said it, he meant it, it's done, it's forgiven, it's, your sins are locked in the tomb, never to come out again. When you know that is when you are going to be the most effective, when you're going to grow the most, when you're going to serve your neighbor the most, because you're going to, for once, get your eyeballs off of your own navel and start focusing on their needs. So, so that's the goal of all this. So Christ starts the church, equips leaders, edifies and equips the saints so that they can do the same for one another and all of it for the purpose of more and more assurance. So that's good news. 
Uh, I hope that encourages you today. Looking forward to seeing many of you next week. Next week, oh my goodness gracious. A little over a week, I'll be in San Diego with some of you here. I see Danielle and Bonnie and Brian are here, so I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be an amazing trip, uh, amazing conference. Uh, also, by the way, Katie, uh, the, the translation, you asked what translation mentioned uh, follow Jesus, dum-dums. That's the Eric Standard Version. So, uh, the Eric Standard Version. You can, you can pick that up from me next week at the conference if you want. I'll, I'll get you a copy. All right, gang, good to be with you. Have a great week. See you next week.